All right. Hello, hello. Welcome to San Diego 350's New Energy Podcast. My name is Sebastian Fay, and I'll be speaking to Noah Harris today. So I just want to start today. Um, for those of us who are in San Diego County, we are zooming in on Kumeyaay Lane. They are people whose traditional life ways intertwine with the worldview of Earth and sky and a community of living beings. This land is part of a relationship that has nourished, healed, protected, and embraced the Kumeyaay people to the present day. It is a part of a worldview founded in the harmony of the cycles of the sky and balance in the forces of life. It is important for us to pay our respects for the past, present, and future of Kumeyaay people. So, welcome Noah. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we're here today, you know, as a kind of follow-up to a transportation justice forum that we had that your uh, uh, director, co-director, Malika, was, was president and um, advocated you know, for a you know transportation justice and, and a new a new future um, for San Diego specifically. So before we get into any of the details of that, um, I just want to you know first I, I'm just curious to know you know a little bit about your your background you know where you came from, um, where you went to school and and how you ended up where you are. Yeah, well. Um... First of all, thanks so much for having me today. Congratulations on the new, new podcast. Uh, very exciting endeavor. Um, yeah, so um, I'm a transportation policy advocate with Climate Action Campaign. But yeah, I'll, I'll back up, I guess. I grew up um, in LA um, in a neighborhood called Beverly Glen Canyon. Um, and um, I think uh, maybe I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but my my um, foray into thinking about transportation started, I think when I was young, my, my neighborhood wasn't served by any transit, really just one kind of two lane road that was always backed up. Um, so traffic was something I was totally used to. Many hours in the car I thought was, was very normal. Um, and then um, I moved out to uh, the Boston area for school. Um, and living there as a student, like totally uh, changed my worldview. Um, I was immediately so kind of, yeah, grateful for the, um, the ability to get around the city, uh, whether it was the tons of bus routes or the great bike infrastructure, um, obviously the train system. Um, and I realized that I could take that excitement and that interest into the classroom um, as a student. Um, and that was where I really got exposed to kind of the nexus of transportation and the environment and climate and advocacy. Um, and that was where I really realized I wanted to dig into this work a lot, a lot deeper. Um, and I had a lot of freedom to, um, kind of tailor my studies around that. I pursued um, kind of an, an interdisciplinary um, major within the American Studies Department. Um, and that, um, that allowed me to kind of um, immerse myself in a range of topics as they relate to climate and the environment, environmental justice, transportation, um, not just transportation though, like food systems, um, all sorts of stuff. Um, you, just, you design your own concentration, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's correct. Um, thanks, yeah, thanks for uh, noticing that. Um, yeah, it was... Um, Admirable, it's like you went to the school and you told them like, I think I, think I wanna focus on this and your, your curriculum doesn't uh, properly cover it, right? Or wouldn't, wouldn't properly support it. Yeah, 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 totally. I mean, I, I had a lot of good support from, from some great professors and, um, yeah, I think a huge shout out to the department for like allowing a lot of us to have the freedom to kind of design, um, and what schools at Boston College? Um, a school called Tufts, um, oh, oh, Tufts yeah. which is kind of, it's in Somerville, Medford area, just outside of Boston. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, I wanted to come back out to Southern California after that. Um, cold? Yeah, yeah. I, I like the weather, but um, wanted to be closer to family, obviously. Sure. And, 
uh, flying back every you know break. Right, right, yeah, and uh, yeah, wound up at um, CAC. Nice. And so, so let's let's talk about the Time Action Campaign. I think it started about twenty fifteen, right? Or, or yes. Yes. And and that the, the goal of it was to you know first of all create help create climate action plans for cities. Um, I guess the so SoCal region, right, uh, specifically, and um, you know, be active in, in, in ensuring that they meet those goals that they then that the city then sets, right? You know, just trying to push for a zero carbon or, or net zero, um, you know, city. I guess the, the whole thing, right? Uh, every aspect of it. Um, so, like. Let's talk about like your, your role as a transportation policy advocate. Like what is what does a day day in the life look like just to kind of give people, you know, what how is the teams, how does the team work, you know, with the staff and, and how does it flow? It'd be really interesting, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll back up from there a bit and sure. um, start by saying, yeah, we, we were founded in twenty fifteen. Um, our mission is it's very very simple. Mission is to stop the climate crisis. Um, our organization, like you were, you were saying, it was founded um, by um, Nicole Kaffritz, and she um, was a primary author on the City of San Diego's landmark 2015 Climate Action Plan, which you referred to, um, which really was, was groundbreaking and um, got international attention for setting its 100% clean energy target, um, which was... Um, a big um, kind of groundbreaking policy at the time and tons of cities have followed suit since then. Um, and um, our organization kind of was founded out of, out of that. So I would say that um, as, a, as a group, our, our bread and butter is working with cities on um, helping to, to craft climate action plans um, and then watchdogging the implementation of those local climate policies. Um, so that is kind of the, the, um, the center of the work that we do. Um, right. And um, I um, have gotten a lot of opportunities to dig into CAPS, which has been great. Um, but the majority of my day-to-day -day is in the transportation space. So um, whether that's attending MTS meetings, listening in and calling in to give comment. Uh, MTS is the local yeah. transit operating agency, agency or SANDAG, which is uh, the regional planning agency. Um, right. Work, so working with parts. Yeah. players and there's the north, there's the north county, right? They have their own transportation. Yeah. Group for planning board. Yeah, yeah. NCTD, if they're operate, operating. Um, yeah. What about LA? Anything up there? No, do you kind of? Yeah, so um, I um, am focused in San Diego. As an organization, we um, are growing, uh, expanding throughout Southern California, mm -hmm. um, focused in San Diego and Orange Counties, mm -hmm. um, but I am strictly focused in San Diego for now. Um, yeah, but uh, growing fast for sure. Definitely. So, um, you know, just given that you had get this kind of information, you know, what are some policies that will impact San Diego's, you know, sooner than later? And, and what, what should we expect to see in the next three years? I mean, I know that SANDAG does, you know, 20 year planning plus and, and MTS is also at least on a few year plans out, you know, uh, if you dig into it, but it'd be interesting if you could share some of the, you know, insights or just kind of what, what's happening. I know SANDAG just got a new, um, I don't know, head of the board or something um he's pretty pretty great guy but uh yeah i'd love to hear what you have to say yeah yeah that's a great question um i think in terms of the next few years um everything we fight for falls under the umbrella of the most recent most up-to-date climate science so what do we need to do to stop the climate crisis um and the, the 2018 UN IPCC uh, Special Report on Global Warming, which was this, this landmark uh, report, um, pretty much said that, that we need to um, reach carbon neutrality by mid-century and negative emissions thereafter to stave off the worst impacts um, 
That's the two C mark, right? Yes, yeah, two degrees of warming. Yeah. Um, you know, so, like more 4.5 Fahrenheit for us Americans. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so what we're fighting for in the next couple of years is aligning climate action plans with those ambitious goals. But we, we know that's what we need to do um, in the transportation um, space in terms of the next couple of years. Like, like you referred to, um, Sandag, um, they are mandated to update their what's called a regional plan every four mm -hmm. years. Um, and that um, is long range planning. So outlines transportation projects and investments um, uh, years and years in advance. Um, and this is the first time that we might actually secure um, a regional plan that centers um, transportation, public transportation, active transportation, um, infrastructure, and centers um, emissions reductions. I think just to give a quick little context on that, our um, regional planning agency, Sandag, it, they've historically um, prioritized uh, roads and highways. Um, Oh, like 90% probably or something like something. Like yeah, like pretty much. Um, yeah, most of the funding going to expanding highways because I think the, the thought was expanding highways reduces congestion. But it, it's counterintuitive, but we, we know conclusively now um, of a theory called induced demand, which basically says that um, if you build a highway, if you expand a highway because of the additional lanes and the... Um, additional space, more people will use that space and it doesn't actually solve congestion. Um, so now, waiting, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, we, we now have a, this, a new executive director. They've been changing tides at Sandag and, and they're really demonstrating a commitment to uh, solving climate crisis. Also, I think it's important to point out the last executive director was uh, who's committed fraud, and that's why I got picked out. Yes, yeah. So yeah. We didn't have good people on our side. But, um, and also, I want to, because I'm sure you know this, but I think it's like something in the order of half of all San Diego emissions is just private transport, right? It's our cars. Um, I mean, most almost everybody has to use cars to get around, so that's where the majority of our emissions are coming from. So like when you address this, you're really addressing a huge portion, right, of SoCal in this area's emissions, right? So it's so so critical to, to start moving that in the right direction. Yeah, I think that's perfectly said. Um, that's something that I didn't totally, I didn't see the direct connection in, until pretty recently, honestly, but I think that stat is so powerful. In San Diego alone, I think it's like 40 plus percent of our emissions are from transportation, largely from cars, and it's similar throughout the state of California. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, hearkening back to the climate science we were talking about, if we, if we know we need to be transitioning off of fossil fuels by mid-century, and transportation is like half of that equation, it's, yeah, we've got, it, like you're saying, we've got to be taking that on. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, basically, and, and I think that's where, you know, you see Newsom, he came in, and, and a lot of countries and uh, all over the world are saying, you know, you need to ban gas cars entirely. There cannot be a new gas car sold in the next like what, 10 to 15 years. So 2030 or 2035, somewhere around there. We need to stop selling all gas cars. I mean, it'd be better if we get them off sooner, but I, um, again, it's like, cause they have these 20 year lives, right? So if it ends in 2030, the last gas car sold 2030, then by 2050, that means everything, every single car would be, you know, electric or hydrogen or some other power, right, kind of thing. And, but, but I think there's also, you know, a lot to be said about, what about, you know, taking out these old, you know, they did cash for clunkers or something where, where you would, you know, the really old cars, right, that, that have really bad emissions, that there might be opportunities there. Um, to kind of get get those heavy polluters off the road and get people onto something cleaner. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great point. I think um, something um, I think about a lot. I think um, electrifying uh, the vehicle fleet um, in California, as as you said, uh, the governor is signaling that the state wants to head in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. It's the minimum. Um, 
the, the, the bare bones minimum strategy to at least begin to take on the transportation challenge when it comes to emissions. We definitely need to be electrifying, but we need to be doing so much more. We need to be not only doing that, but also investing in public transportation and investing in active transportation um, for so many reasons. And I, I think we're going to get into those today. But yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. We'll get too far ahead. So um, I know I looked. I looked at your site. And I know one of the things that you know, one of the outputs that the CAC, the Climate Action Campaign, does are these climate action report cards, right? And so that's how you are kind of keeping on the different cities how they're meeting their commitments, right? And you, everybody in the, in, the, in the org kind of contributes to that, right? They, they all kind of measure your pieces of, of, the, of the report card, right? And, uh, are, and, and so, you know, how, how can people use the report cards and to, to push cities to take more positive action? You know, I mean, they can look at it. I, I've looked at it before, obviously. It's like a scorecard, like one out of 100, kind of, and then you you give points based on how they're doing across these, you know, the pieces, depending on how impactful they are, right? In the broader scheme of things. So yeah, can you just talk about how you deal with that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I think um, one, one way the report card can be used is to identify um, best practices. I, I'll say, I think one of our kind of operating principles is that um, cities are the hubs of innovation for um, climate policy, for policies that, um, yeah, uh, climate policy, transportation policy, et cetera. And um, they can be tested in cities and when they work, they can be um, lifted by other cities and implemented um, kind of iteratively. Um, and then hopefully up to the state level and then maybe even the national level. So um, I think the report card is, is a great example of that. It's a way I think for advocates to identify best practices in other cities and then they can go to their own city council and their own mayor and say, this um, policy is working really well in our neighboring city in terms of reducing emissions from this, from whatever sector you're talking about. And then um, kind of, um, helping to um, kind of really, it's really like knowledge sharing between cities. So, um, and are at the same, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Are you measuring the direct emissions impact of these? Of like how, is that how you're measured? Is that like the, how you get to that score? Um, or is it like our adoption or like how, how quickly things are transitioning? Yeah, yeah, there are two um, kind of templates for scoring. There's uh, the policy level and then the implementation level. So um, okay. our team takes a look at yeah. both. Um, How strong is the policy and then how well they implement that policy. Exactly, yeah. Okay, because I, I'm just thinking about it. I mean, in one sense, yes, like it's how well is this policy getting you to your emissions reductions, which you've already mandated and said you need to get to, right? And you just need to fill in the gaps of how you're going to do that. But I was also thinking, I mean, you know, something that's successful and able to pass on to other uh, cities and, and areas all over the world would be like, how, you know, much does this save the city, right? You know, cities are always looking to, to save money or to, to make things more, you know, better, more efficient, right? I think there's also the case to be made in some of these, these transitions that, you know, clean energy, renewable energy, it's not just good for the planet and good for people. It's like good for public health. It reduces, you know, caught like lifetime costs, right? Like you can run an electric car, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles more than a gas car, you know, no maintenance, these kind of things, right? Like there, there's a, I feel like there, it's, it's hard to quantify, but like in a lot of different ways, you know, when you upgrade stuff, you get better outcomes, right? Like, like a heat pump, for example, it's like a pretty, like not well known, but basically, you know, you you get off from like gas burning and you heat and the heat pump like stores and keeps all the heat, you know, you're not losing energy. And, and just by doing that, you're not only being more efficient and sustainable, but it's also much more cost effective, right? It pays itself off very quickly. So, I mean, what does that kind of role play? I mean, I know it's hard to speak more like a budgetary thing, but to me, it, it seems pretty important. Um, Definitely. Yeah, I think that's a great, those are great examples. I think something um, 
we try to do not only when we're advocating for those policies, but we also at, really encourage cities um, when they're doing annual monitoring. So when they're reporting out their progress on their climate action plans um, to really also be thinking about the co-benefits of the various policies. And, and like you, you've said, I mean, so many of these investments come with such an incredible range of co-benefits. I think so often people think about climate action as um, a reduction in your quality of life because you have to like uh, uh, make changes in your behavior that you don't want to make potentially. But I, I think we feel like, and I feel really strongly about this, especially in the transportation space, mm -hmm. these climate investments, they have so many co-benefits that improve quality of life for our residents and for our neighborhoods um, in ways that are, are desperately needed. Um, and yeah. so I, I try to always be talking about those as well, not just the emissions reductions. Yeah, and, and so I wanna, I wanna step into like transportation justice because basically it's, you know, we talk about these investments and these, these changes, this transition, and it's um, basically like, only really, you know, cities with a ton of money, you know, cities with big budgets or, you know, wealthy people that can make these changes, say buy the electric car, get the heat pump, get the solar panels, you know, make these big changes. And so where I see, you know, just that justice aspect and the social justice aspect coming in is, is, you know, how do we advocate and how do we get, you know, the people that, are, that aren't able to make these investments, how do we get them these opportunities to then better their situation so that it's not just the people that are ahead getting further in it, but those that are behind able to get the best, you know? Because uh, we have all the, we have it all available. It's just, I'd say, unevenly distributed, right? So any, anything, anything, any kind of notes you have on that? Yeah, yeah, that's a very um, good point. I think regional planning is a really, really good tool for, for the challenge you're talking about. Um, when it comes to cities having um, vastly different uh, budgets and access to resources, I think one of the uh, one of the um, strengths of regional planning is having all of this access to state funding. So many of these big transportation projects rely on state and federal funding to make them happen. Uh, and I think with regional planning. Um, uh, you can really design a transportation system that isn't siloed city by city because obviously transportation isn't happening just city by city. I mean, we live in a region where people are traveling all over the place. Um, and so um, I think my response to that would be, I think at, in terms of what's going on right now. So like, like we said, um, Sandag is updating the regional plan next year. They're going to finalize this update. And that's a great space to advocate for investments in historically underinvested places and in historically underinvested cities and neighborhoods. And because they have, they're hopefully going to have the plan and the dollars. And I think the goal would be um, always prioritizing transportation projects in those historically underinvested neighborhoods first and meeting the needs of those. Because they're the ones using, you know. <laughs> People with cars aren't using the transportation, public transportation, so we shouldn't, you know, people talk about, oh, we need a line to the airport, right? It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, you, you're, you're going to get dropped off by somebody at the airport anyways. It's like, you, you need to, like, first of all, you need, like, let's say, rail lines to, to employment centers, you know, for people to get from their homes to the employment. I think that's, like, priority number one, right? And then, you know, then I, I want to talk about, you know, the CAC, uh, has these has this five fights one lens so the fights are 100 percent clean energy bikeable walkable neighborhoods world-class transit shade trees and all electric homes you know and um i think all those kind of tie those are all you know great kind of ideals to kind of push for um and 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 again as we we're kind of mentioning it's like these kind of decisions have to make, be made through a lens of equity and justice um, and, and so, yeah, I, I guess, I guess kind of to summarize, you're saying, you know, go, um, putting your voice out to Sandag to make sure that these kind of things are taken into account in the regional plan are, are really important because 
all the money's there, right? And it just has been poorly distributed and it needs to be uh, shifted, right? I mean, I think that that's a big, big thing that, you know, you just redistribute resources because, and especially to where it's needed most, you know, you have to look at it that way. Cause I don't, I don't think it's ever been looked at that way. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well said, um, absolutely. Um, okay, so I, I just want to, um, yeah, go, go back a little bit to some of the, some of the things that came up during our, uh, during the transportation forum. We had some really awesome speakers, uh, really powerful. Um, it was on November 12th, by, by the way, if anybody wants to go back, we'll, we'll have it on the um, SG350 website. But, uh, so one of them was LISC. Uh, Ricardo Flores, the executive director, and he spoke about uh, redlining and how impactful that has been. Um, and uh, Rahu, uh, Rio Oxas from Rahuk, a consultancy she founded, um, that is about you know sustainability and, and, and justice and equity in, in all sorts of forms. Uh, I thought it was really cool she's doing and then of course Malika was one of the panelists uh, your co-director um, Randy Torres and Ben Fleck of City Heights CDC um, which I know has done a lot for within the City Heights area to to make you know improve walkways to add bike lanes to really focus on um, you know creating that more walkable you know better uh, design neighborhood um, uh, Brian Barry uh, Puller from the Urban Cl Collaborative Project um, and Esperanza Gonzalez from Mid-City uh, Camp. So they all kind of brought a different flavor to, and, and, and different take and, um, you know, it was really cool to see all the panelists and speakers just get, throwing out what they've been working on and, and what they've been thinking about in, in terms of this uh, this transportation justice lens and, and, um, so it was mostly focused on the causes and, imp and impacts of transportation injustice. So you have to identify the injustice before you can, uh, understand how to, how to, you know, uh, change it. And, and those are both structural and systemic. And, um, and, and so, yeah, I just want to, you know, continue that conversation. Just want to talk to you about, I'm going to start with, with redlining. Um, because I think it just, it can't be said enough. Uh, and you, you drive around San Diego, right? And you know where the, the nice areas are, right? It's Coronado, it's La Jolla, Point Loma, Mission Hills, right? But then you see, you know, back when they redlined this area, they, they said, these are the green areas. They get all the money, you know? And then everything south of downtown uh, Chula Vista area was red and meaning that they got no no loans so no possibility of building um, homes or you know investing in, in their neighborhoods and um, yeah it, it's you know it's essentially a starving of resources and then you play that out over 70 years I mean yes San Diego has benefited enormously you know housing prices have skyrocketed and we have a ton of money here, but it does still feel like, I mean, you look at the transport lines, right? Um, they start in downtown and they go up north, right? They don't, they're, they're kind of, there's missing in a lot of areas and, um, and people need to commute or before this, before COVID, they needed to commute from down, you know, Chula Vista below and up to the city and up to Sorrento Valley and stuff. So um, yeah, what, what is your, you know, what, and I'm sure you've researched and looked into it, but what is your take on, on redlining and, and kind of its impacts? Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's all well said. And I, I think we've already um, um, talked about this a little bit, but um, I, I think this is a really important moment to reemphasize. Um, the first step needs to be prioritizing investments in those historically um, redlined communities where um, resources were diverted um, from. And I think a key piece to that that I, I wanna um, really emphasize is having uh, community members lead the charge on those investments. I think 
whether it's transportation investments specifically or climate investments in general, I think it's really important that we have community members, community leaders, um, place-based organizations that are advocating for their communities, um, really leading the charge on um, making decisions about where those investments are gonna go. Um, and I, I, I think um, that's because um, people know what their needs are and uh, we have tons of incredible advocates throughout San Diego that are fighting really hard for a region that um, achieve is working towards transportation justice. It, it not just working towards stopping the climate crisis, but also in hand in hand working towards transportation justice. And um, I think um, a, a second piece to this that's really important that um, clearly you guys are working on a lot is, is talking about this history, um, unveiling this history to to San Diego, um, because um, I think it's really well put what you said, you can't talk about transportation justice until you identify the injustices in the system, um, whether that's um, access to job centers, access to um, mobility, access to um, train lines, like you've said, trolley lines, or whether that's exposure to air pollution, um, whether that's displacement and gentrification. There are so many um, injustices within this umbrella that are all intertwined. And so I think talking about them and talking about how they are legacies of the history of redlining is key to undoing that history, to undoing those racist policies, whether um, that was uh, the racial covenants of the mid-century that um, reinforced segregation, reinforced segregated neighborhoods and um, continued patterns of disinvestment. Yeah, I think it's important that um, in these spaces we're always talking about those histories and identifying that um, those histories live on in maybe they look different, but they, that they, they have after lives. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I didn't say it specifically, but I think it, it does bear stating was that you know the red line happened in 19 like 30s uh due to the great depression there was the new deal that was passed right which was an enormous stimulus across the entire u.s and as part of that they the federal government the whole idea of redlining was to create you know economic um investment areas and they did it based on racial preferences so like the it, the problem is that it's still kind of racially segregated to this day in a sense right like some of these really nice neighborhoods because the because this disparity hasn't gone away right it's only increased i would say you know they don't have uh, you know uh bipox people do not have the same opportunities they don't get the same job options they don't get to inherit their parents houses in these nice neighborhoods so and, and we kind of got to this point at the at the forum as well, where it's saying, okay, we we understand that there's this, you know, that these nice these nice neighborhoods like like Mission Hills or, or um, you know Coronado are the way they are. But what are the what what if you're thinking dramatic and transformative? Like, what are the real ways? to to change this you know one, one of the ideas floated was you know um one, one thing that i've heard of it's multiple times they called ab5 it was multiple times it's been pushed up in the state um as a state bill where it would give uh, landowners the options to split their land to separate you know one piece of land into four parcels so if they wanted to they could put four units where there is currently one and that was something that was brought up. It was uh, that, you know, they specifically enforced these front lawns just so you couldn't use the space. So you couldn't, you know, put two units on there way back, you know, years ago or something. And, and also maintain this, you know, neighborhood character, right? Which really, when you think about it, especially some of these high density areas, like it's just wasted space, right? It wasn't only good, bad for the environment. I mean, putting grass along is not great say at all it's one of the worst ideas but just learning that it's also part of this exclusionary practice was kind of it's just a little disturbing i would say 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, like, like we've said, I mean, the, um, the, uh, the legacy of redlining in, includes, um, yeah, access to um, whether or not certain neighborhoods have access to, to housing or access to job opportunities or access to, to wealth, um, I think the history of, of wealth transfer is also really tied up, like you said, in mm -hmm. redlining. So I think those are all really good points. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, just thinking, thinking forward here, um, you know, is, I, I think it would take something like a, either a massive stimulus or like progressive tax or some kind of, I, I think we're very uncomfortable with this idea of redistribution of wealth you don't really get talked about it much, right? Because it's always thrown in this bucket of socialism. But really, socialism isn't even political in a sense. If it's, if it's done properly, it's economic, right? It's, it's purely an economic method of, create, of helping create more equal opportunities, I think. Um, and, and I think something like, like uh, AOC does a good job. You know, they, there's a party called the Socialist Democrats. It's both ideas, right? You need both ideas. You need strong democracy, you need uh, the ability for people to raise their voices when needed, and you also need the sense of fairness, right? I think that's something that we've kind of come to accept as something that is not really there. <laughs> and I mean, I, I just am wondering if, if you've thought about it or if, if I mean, it, I know it's like pretty far out, but I'm um, curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very high level question, an important question. I think um, something I think about in terms of my role at CAC is um, putting um, housing uh, near jobs in transit and increasing access to transit. And I think through through those 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 likely huge investments, um, the goal one big part of that would obviously be increasing access not only to housing but also to job opportunities i think all housing policy climate policy and transportation policy are all very intertwined and so um making sure we're putting housing where it's needed in the right places near jobs and transit so people can choose to um yeah i think more it's greater, but putting high density housing right around transit lines right you want people to use transit so Give them that opportunity right I, I mean it's the that's something i think that it's hard to argue against right <laughs> um, yeah that's yeah one, that's one of the simplest easiest things to do and you know there, i'm sure there's developers that would be happy to to do that um and i do think it is part of the cities you know they they recognize that right and it is something that they're they're looking at constantly definitely yeah and i think in terms of the investment piece that you're really um, picking up on, which I think is really important, I, I think we need to be honest about the fact that transforming our transportation system um, in a way that advances transportation justice, um, it's not it's not cheap. You know, like these are these are big capital projects that cost a lot of money. Granted, not as expensive as it is to expand and maintain our highway system but i think if we really take seriously this project of building a transportation system that advances transportation justice that connects people to jobs and their needs connects people to um opportunity um then um i mean i think that that is really should be like the core driving kind of principle um for um this uh, SANDAG 2021 regional plan update, um, really just making huge investments in transportation that not only help reduce emissions towards stopping the climate crisis, but also are ensuring that folks have access to, to, uh, to jobs and to needs. Mm -hmm. um, because if, if, if they're not doing that, then it's a failed job. You know, I mean, it's been too long, decades, like you said, with underinvestment. So, we should expect our elected leaders to achieve that for us. One other thing that came up I think is important is like sprawl, right? I mean, necessarily we San Diego and all the all cities basically just keep kind of 
the, the limits keep growing, right? As people, you know, seek space, so they go further and further out. I mean, how, do you have any idea how you can address that? I mean, obviously, I know, you know, I've seen ballot measures and that kind of stuff where they say, oh, approve this, you know, couple hundred uh, house thing and, and people can strike it down and not. Um, but, you know, I, I, I really see like, you know, as part of the vision of making walkable cities where everything's located close together, you need to stop spreading, right? And you also need to give back land. I think you need to do more with rewilding. So any anything you can say about that or, or kind of guidance uh, that you're thinking? Definitely, yeah. And I'll just for just for context a little bit, I think it's really important to note that sprawl has um, so many disastrous impacts. Um, I think specifically in the transportation space, just to set the stage on this, when, when housing is far away from goods, from jobs, from needs, that further entrenches auto dependency and people are forced to use their fossil fuel cars to do what they need to do every day. Um, and that's not their fault, that's our land use patterns um, that is entrenching that. Um, I think um, what this really comes down to though is our, our leadership um, and um, our elected officials, um, especially at the county, um, at the county level, the county board of supervisors, um, I think need to be leading the charge on ensuring that we are putting housing not far away from everything else. Um, I think just to speak briefly about some of the other impacts, I mean, especially in our region, sprawl is extremely dangerous. I mean, so, much, so many of these proposed sprawl projects are in really high wildfire risk zones, and we don't need any more reminders of that um, with uh, the uh, wildfire year that we've had with so many California acres burned and um, sprawl. Uh, we should not be putting housing where it will be at risk um, of, of these uh, really kind of disastrous wildfires. Um, but additionally, I mean, these sprawl projects, they, they threaten our, our local native species and they threaten our natural lands, like you said. Um, and I think these are all things we need to be constantly reminding our elected officials at the county about because um, with uh, public pressure, with advocacy, with residents, community members saying we need housing, um, that is climate friendly, that is climate safe, um, that um, will ensure that we're achieving um, a zero carbon future. I think just constantly reminding them of that is, is key because they, uh, they lead the charge on, on a lot of land use decisions in our region. Um, right. So, yeah. It's really tough because it's like, we just have this land ownership kind of situation where very few people are in control of a lot of it, right? And it's all it's all like privately, you know, passed around. And there, there's no, you know, you have to really get leaders who will stand up to say, like, to, to understand is not right and won't take the like handouts, right? To kind of stop stuff like that from happening. Um, okay, I want to just shift to a little positive kind of fun thing. So an interesting point that was brought up uh, at the forum was making public transportation fun and attractive and, and even enjoyable. Um, so like, for example, Montreal has a bus, has bus stops that include like swings for adults. So you can swing while you wait. <laughs> that was cool. And our another one um, that I saw was in South Korea, this really cool uh, bike path, which is in the middle of the freeway and it's covered in solar panels. So it's shaded throughout the year um you know feel it's protected it's enclosed you know you've got the metal poles on both sides um and and yeah so with that in mind i just want to hear you know any anything you've seen or anything that you think like creativity or fun or or how could we you know incentivize people to to, to you know use use rail and, and and buses and and make that a more enjoyable experience yeah, I, I love this question. I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, and th those are a couple of great examples. I think the first thing that comes to mind to me, honestly, is, is art. I think there are a lot of great opportunities to um, 
support and elevate local artists at uh, transportation stops. I've seen a lot of examples of this, of, of cities kind of uh, uh, working with local artists to, um, I don't know, include uh, installation projects or murals at transit stops. Yeah, uh, I've seen or maybe like conceptual, like like a sculpture work or something cool, or, or like light sculptures or something. I could, see, I could imagine something like that would be cool. Yeah, and one one other example I want to shout out that I, I just thought of the um, uh, there's a, a a train line in the Boston area. One of the stops has kind of an interactive um, music installation. It's like a huge uh, scaled up. Uh, almost like a um, like a xylophone kind of a vibe with mallets mm -hmm. that people can come and like uh, mess around with and kind of make a little music while they're waiting for the train. So um, yeah, I think this is a really fun question to think about. And there there are a lot of ways to use um, um, transportation infrastructure projects to continue uh, placemaking, to continue uh, beautifying neighborhoods and, and making spaces. Um, like putting them there by park, you know, like you should have bus stops at every park or something like that. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's a great idea. The other one I wanted to point out is, so I, I studied abroad in, in Berlin and Germany for uh, during my junior year of college. And one thing that I noted is, it the, the, the system is so good, right? It's, it's all over the city, you can get almost everywhere with the rail, you know, you hardly have it and then when you really need to, you can use a bus, but it's super comprehensive. I mean, almost, you know, people my age don't have cars. They're just, there's no need for it. And it's really expensive to get a car too. It's like a permit costs like $2,000 or something, which is, and cars are more expensive there in general as well. And, um, you know, I also, I think it, it bears emphasizing because people don't realize this, but having a good rail system, you know, like, um, both the underground and overground into both, but, and it's open really late. So what that enables is people to have fun. They can go out, they can go to all the bars they want. They can, you know, bar hop, no problem. They can go to clubs and it enables, you know, a, and everybody can be safe because you never, you never drink and drive. Um, you can, you know, meet up with people on the train. You know, you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, it, it makes the coordinating easier and everything. Um, so I think that to me is like, if you ask me like, what, what do I want most out of the rail system? I would say, you know, enabling connection, enabling fun, you know, actually, um, you know, creating that, like a great environment, a great, you know, Berlin's a party city of the world. It's, you know, one of the top ones. And, uh, I think it definitely helps that, that they have this system that's open to like, I don't know, all nine or something. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's cool that you have that experience. I think there are a couple of little points in there that I really do want to also just tease out that I think are really valuable. One being that there, it sounds like, and also here, having a car and maintaining a car is like extremely expensive. And so if we have a transportation system that re relies on you having and maintaining a car, and that's a huge percentage of your income every month is taking care of of a car that is a huge issue of accessibility i mean it's unacceptable that we have a transportation system that forces such a huge expense on so many people and what we need to be advocating for is um, a transportation system like it sounds like you experienced where folks can choose to not um have a car and folks don't don't need to to own and maintain a car to do their day-to-day -day stuff um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's that's an important point, and I think another piece of that that I just do want to say quickly is um, just on the co-benefits piece here is that mm -hmm. uh, not only are they expensive, but even as we electrify, I mean, so many of our cars on the road right now um, are really um, so dangerous for local air pollution, and if you live close to a highway, um, you're being exposed to so much. Um, uh, dangerous, harmful pollutants every day, um, which are causing terrible health impacts. Exactly. So those are just a couple, I mean, co-benefits that I immediately thought about when you share your story about Berlin um, yeah. that we can immediately take care of with a stronger transportation system. Well, not, not immediately, because that's, that's the thing we can also point out. I mean, 
like you do have to recognize these cities have been around for hundreds of years, right? Like, and mm -hmm. they do have this. So like we can, we could expect it if we have the money, if we put it towards it, we could build an amazing world class in I would say 20 years, but we have to recognize that it will take, you know, we'll get somewhere in 10 years. I think pretty, you know, to me easiest is like get a really good rapid bus transit. So we have the roads just close off, you know, lanes on the freeway for, for buses or something. You know, like give them that that rapid access, figure out that, and then really work on getting a good rail system um, in the long term. But I, you know, it's it's doable, but just, you know, also condense the cities too, right? Just to, so you don't have to stretch your rail system out for, across, you know, a huge amount of lanes. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really key point that in Southern California, we have a very different land use history than your a lot of European cities that were not built around cars, like mm -hmm. that were built around mostly pedestrians and um, non-car forms of travel. But so many of our cities out here are designed specifically to accommodate the car. And, and because of that, they're huge and sprawling and huge roadways. Things are far away from each other. So that's definitely an additional challenge. Um, well, this has been great. I think it's a really productive conversation. And uh, just on a ending note, uh, what are you grateful for? Oh my gosh! Wow, <laughs> that that's a great, uh, great question to close out the conversation. What am I grateful for? Um, um, I mean, honestly, the first thing I thought of is just grateful that. Uh, uh, my parents and sister are safe right now and still healthy. Um, that's something I've been thinking about a lot mm -hmm. this week with, with the rises in uh, mm -hmm. cases that we're seeing across the country. Um, um, that was the first thing that came to mind. Um, mm -hmm. Also grateful for the tea that I'm drinking right now. <laughs> what having type of tea is it? Earl Grey. I'm having a major Earl Grey moment yeah. lately. So, mm -hmm. um, How about you? What, how about you? Um, I mean, I, I would just say I'm always, I'm always grateful to be living here in San Diego. I moved down here about two years ago and I just, it's such a beautiful place. Like every, every part of it, I just feel at home at whether I'm in, you know, Point Loma, whether I'm here in Mission Hills, you know, going to, like, just being able to go run around Bellow Park, running down to the harbor. I mean, it's just such a beautiful city. There's so many, you know, wonderful things about it. And, uh, and you're able to be in touch with nature, you know, a lot more than, in other cities, I think, um, you know, there, there is some, some really redeeming, really nice parts of it. And yeah, and then grateful for, you know, my family that they're here and um, very supportive and, and my friends. So it's what matters most, I think. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks. I hope we keep in touch and maybe have you on, on again um, and some more interesting developments occur. So um, yeah, we'll sign off with that. Thank you all for joining and listening in if you're still with us. Um, please check out uh, sandiego350.org for more information on the organization, what we're up to. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And with that, I will sign cool. off. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.